I'm John Edwards, the lute player and artistic director of the Musicians in Ordinary. You're hearing an excerpt from a pavan by John Bull, which is from a book of music for the virginals called Parthenia. And this is the third in a series of podcasts about that book, with performances of music from it by keyboardist Louise Hung. These podcasts and the recordings of Louise's performances are supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, York University, the Spem in Allium Fund of the Toronto Foundation, and individual donors. It's clear from the dedication of the first edition of Parthenia that it was published sometime in late 1612 or early 1613 as part of the wedding celebrations for the daughter of King James I of England and VI of Scotland, Princess Elizabeth Stuart, and her fiancé, Frederick Elector Palatine. Deanne Williams is Professor of English and Theatre Studies at York University, a Fellow of the Centre for Renaissance and Reformation Studies, and of the College of New Scholars, Artists and Scientists of the Royal Society of Canada. I spoke to her about the plays and masks performed at court in the run-up to this most cultural royal wedding, and how the themes of those plays correspond to the lavish language of the dedication. At the end of our chat, you'll hear Louise play the pavan by Bull in its entirety, as well as a galliard and some variations called The Queen's Command, both by Orlando Gibbons. Deanne, just before we get started, uh, let me um, do a quick biography of Elizabeth Stewart in case for some of our listeners don't have it all off by heart. Uh, she was, Elizabeth Stewart was born in Fife while her father was King of Scotland and her godmother was Elizabeth I of England. And when in 1603 her father succeeded Queen Elizabeth, she with her mother Anne and her brother Henry did the progress to London. And on the way, as you say in uh, one of your books, uh, on the way she's part of entertainments where she's at once both audience and participant in the way of masks, like uh, people come out of the, Sylvans come out of the forest and uh, address her as if she's part of the action, Well, which indeed she is. Uh, anyway, after, uh, after she's been uh, in London for a while, the Earl of Salisbury, who we talked about a lot in our last episode, uh, thanks to his negotiations, uh, she's betrothed to uh, Frederick, the Count Palatine of the Rhine, which is a very important state in uh, part of the Holy Roman Empire. And he's a staunch Protestant and eventually is uh, elected King of Bohemia, uh, which was one of the causes of the Thirty Years' War. He was quickly defeated and died fairly young at 36, and Elizabeth outlived him by 30 years and uh, lived in exile in The Hague as the Winter Queen. So it's sort of sad adulthood, but a very spectacular childhood. I'm going to read in, the, in the, one of the episodes I read out parts of the uh, dedication of Parthenia, but I'm going to read out the whole thing now, I think, because it's, so, uh, it's great. Um, the dedication is uh, by William Hall, uh, the publisher, and it says, uh, To the high and mighty and magnificent Prince Frederick, Elector Palatine of the Rhine, and his betrothed lady, Elizabeth, the only daughter of my lord, the king. The virgin Parthenia, whilst yet I may, 
I offer up to your virgin highnesses. To you, gracious lady, even from birth she was intended, and now, I trust, shall be more welcome, having learned to tune and twine those neighbor letters E and F. The vowel makes so sweet a consonant. Her notes so linked and wedded together seem lively hieroglyphics of the harmony of marriage, the high and holy state whereinto you shortly must be incorporate. This small work, yet the first in this kind, was only meant for this lesser world, howbeit under your shadows, in your sunshine, I should rather say, that is, your sweet and glorious concert, it may sound and relish in the ears of the greater. For music, like that miraculous tongue of the apostles, having but one and the same character, is alike known to all the sundry nations of the world. And what wonder, since harmony is the soul thereof, multipliciously varied of four bare notes, as is the body of the four elements. These lessons, these pieces, these lessons were composed by three famous masters in the faculties, whereof one had the honours to be your teacher, most illustrious lady, and, had he not been before, thereby deserved the style of doctor. If to their greater grace your grace will vouchsafe to lend your white hands, they will arrive with more pleasure at the princely ears of your great Frederick. Our Lord Jesus, who hath honoured marriage with his dear presence and first miracle, extraordinarily done at the insistence of his maiden mother, eternally bless you maids and married. Your Highnesses most humbly, uh, William Hall. So there's a lot going on there. Uh, so this was published sometime between the arrival of Frederick for the wedding, uh, which is the 16th of October, 1612, and their wedding um, on Valentine's Day, 1613, in uh, Whitehall Palace. Uh, the many kinds of entertainments, as well as this book, were put on. Um, uh, sea battles on the Thames, fake sea battles, uh, fireworks, uh, and of course, masks. Uh, uh, Deanne, tell us about the masks that were put on and how their themes correspond with those in the dedication I just read. Uh, that describe the couple moving from maidenhood to adulthood. Well, there's so much going on in this dedication, John, that reflects a kind of um, glorification of girlhood that happened around this royal wedding, um, but that was happening more generally at, in these years in the early 17th century. And if you look at, you know, the way that the word Parthenia works, right, with its origins in the Greek word for girl, Parthenos, right, the word that gives us, of course, Parthenon as mm -hmm. well. We have this, uh, co this connection between the instrument of the virginals and the, this virgin daughter who is betrothed to Prince Frederick, Elector Palatine of the Rhine. Of course, they were two virgins. They were both virgins. Mm -hmm. They were both the same age. Um, and quite a, quite a lot was made of the fact that they were that there, he was a boy virgin as much as she was a girl virgin. The uh, this sort of idea of the two virgins um, uh, makes me think as well about uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono, <laughs> the way they yeah. understood themselves yeah. as being being reborn in I each think other's love. That's the first love. time that's been compared. Isn't it? <laughs> I think so. 
So, you know, we've also got that idea, that kind of ancient Greek idea of like a virgin sacrifice, right? Which mm-hmm. is also evoked in that line about uh, offering the virgin Parthenia to the virgin highnesses, right? Mm-hmm. This kind of offering, you know, which makes me think as well about, you know, about offering, say, to the goddess Diana, right? Um, also a virgin goddess, but also to, you know, to other virgin goddesses who are, uh, relevant to the young Princess Elizabeth, right? First of all, her namesake, as you mentioned, Queen Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen, and the whole cult of virginity that swirled around that Elizabeth, which gets picked up and developed by Elizabeth Stuart. But also, you know, along with the classical goddess Diana, we've got the uh, the Christian uh, Virgin Mary, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, also, and the maiden mother who mm-hmm. is who is evoked at the end of the dedication, our Lord Jesus, uh, and his maiden mother. So there's a lot about virginity and motherhood tied up with with Elizabeth and her sort of symbolic value to England at that stage in 1612, 1613. And this is em- emphasized in the masks too that are that are put on during the week of uh, their wedding as well. Exactly, yeah. There were some really spectacular masks that were put on during that period. Um, the first one, um, Lord, the Lord's Mask by the musical composer Thomas Campion, included nymphs dancing around uh, some, uh, some statues that, mm-hmm. uh, that come to life, like in Shakespeare's Winter's Tale. Mm-hmm. So we have this kind of opposition between virgin girls and nymphs and these kinds of wife, adult, female statues coming to, coming to life. But there and are so, four of so them, not just they one. go from being cold, hard, white stone to being warm flesh and blood in the same way you move that way. Uh, and from childhood to mar- from virginhood to marriage. Interesting, yeah. Also, you know, this is right around the time that um, that the Duchess of Malfi, Webster's Duchess of mm-hmm. Malfi, was uh, was being performed um, in uh, the Black Friars, and the Duchess talks about herself as not a figure cut in alabaster. Right, <laughs> the idea that she also kind of comes mm-hmm. to life um, through love in that play. So there's definitely that idea about moving from a kind of cold, virginal stone to something more fleshy <laughs> in, uh, in the Lord's Mask. And then there was one called the Memorable Mask, which was composed by uh, George Chapman, the great translator of Homer, uh, among other things, that was interested not so much in the kind of classical idea of the nymph, but instead of the, the idea of the virgin that spoke to the kind of colonial context of the virgin landscape of the new mm. world. So it was this new world mask tied to uh, tied to Virginia, uh, the Virginia Company and the colony in Virginia that that Which was, her dad was very involved in. Yes, and had uh, James the first very recently set up, and that mask also includes virgin boys as well as virgin mm-hmm. girls together. Um, but yeah, we have that different that different association of the new world with virginity in uh, the memorable mask, and then there's um, Francis Beaumont's mask of the inner temple, and of course we know Beaumont as uh, part of the great duo Beaumont and Fletcher, mm-hmm. authors of the Knights of the Burning Pestle and uh, the Maid's Tragedy, which we'll be talking about uh, later on. 
And the Mask of the Inner Temple focuses on uh, rivers and river goddesses, which gets us back to that sort of association of nymphs and naiads with bodies of water. And it recalls a mask that had been performed about three years before around the investiture of Elizabeth's big brother, Prince Henry, mm-hmm. um, called Tethys Festival. Mm-hmm. And he died, I should add at this point, he died also during this six months that uh, Frederick the Elector Palatine. So in their uh, their ceremonies and things, they went from wearing, uh, they had to keep switching back between mourning clothes and these uh, celebratory clothes in um, in this period of mourning. Uh, so Tethys Festival, go on. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, when Elizabeth was was rehearsing Tethys Festival back in 1610, she wrote to her brother Henry about it. Um, and the little girls who performed as naiads in Tethys Festival were uh, marveled at for the intricacy <laughs> of their dances and their performance. And their closeness was really illustrated by um, the last words of of Prince Henry as he lay dying were, where is my dear sister? Mm, that's, so, yeah, that's a sad tale. It, Henry, a it would have been Henry, Henry the Ninth. How, how different things might have mm-hmm. been. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're, you're talking about, um, what, what, what the dedication talks about um, Elizabeth's using her uh, white hands to perform the pieces in the book uh, for her husband. And you were talking a little bit about these aristocratic girls taking part in the masks. Uh, Tell us, have you got some more about uh, these aristocratic performers that you'd like to tell us? Well, the the most important aristocratic performer, or at least member of the court who performed in these masks, who was female, was Anne Dudley, who was Elizabeth's maid of honor Mm -hmm. um, and her great friend from the time she arrived in England in 1603. Uh, They were besties. Um, but these, uh, these three masks, which were performed, there, there were also two masks that were unperformed. There was a mask called the Mask of Truth, where the, the princess would have represented this kind of undefiled Protestant virginal mm-hmm. uh, truth, uh, which had, would have really focused um, on, on Elizabeth. And there was also a one that she herself uh, was organizing, a ballet, which involved multiple lovely maids. She, Elizabeth, was organizing. Mm-hmm. Wow. So those two um, masks were not part of the performed um, Palatinate masks. It's not entirely clear what happened. There's a story about um, King James getting really cranky by the time uh, the Mask <laughs> of Truth was supposed to be performed and just canceling it and wanting to go to bed. Um, and I wonder if it, it may uh, have to do with the fact that these uh, masks, these unperformed masks, would have involved a lot of female performers. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he might have. And, 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 and James the, I, let's face it, uh, James I was interested more in male performers. Much more so. It also would have taken attention away from him, right? It would have mm-hmm. placed much yeah. more attention on Elizabeth. And we know and from... And Anne. And Anne. And there was yeah. a bit of a sort of... Uh, between those two, I think there was a bit of a struggle for who gets the most attention, uh, uh, James and his wife. Exactly. But these um, these three uh, masks weren't the only dramatic events or performances in that six months that Frederick comes over and um, is courting and then marrying his bride. Uh, a man called John Hemmings was paid for organizing the performance of 14 plays, but then there were others besides uh, Philip Rossiter, who was a song composer and 
composer of music for the Broken Consort, the main theatre or a band of that period. Philip Rossiter was paid uh, to put a performances by one of his boys' companies that he organised. It averages one play that was put on a week while Frederick was there uh, getting hitched. Um, there's, uh, let's see, there's a bunch of uh, anonymous ones. Uh, the Knot of Fools, Raymond Duke of Lyon, that sounds like a good one, The Knaves, uh, The Twins' Tragedy by Richard Nichols, nobody knows what that is, uh, The Nobleman, The Dutch Courtesan, uh, uh, there's about five by Beaumont and Fletcher, who you were just talking about, Philaster, uh, King and No King, Maid's Tragedy, we'll talk about the captain, the coxcomb. There's a, possibly a play, Cardenio, that may be Fletcher and Shakespeare, and then about half a dozen uh, Shakespeare's. Uh, Merry Wives, Julius Caesar, Winter's Tale, Tempest, Much Ado, and Othello. Uh, you write in Shakespeare and the Performance of Girlhood, your book, about how the matter of some of these also corresponds to themes in the dedication and in these masks. Do you want to talk about some of those plays? For sure. So there's... You can sort of imagine, you know, this kind of incredible con conflict and contrast between the arrival of Frederick, the Count Palatine, and the kind of, you know, their 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 recognition of each other as, you know, as as obviously future dynastic spouses, but also, you know, they really loved each other. Mm -hmm. um, and then the tragedy. I mean, it would make a great movie. Mm -hmm. The tragedy of of, of Henry, uh, the Prince of Wales, uh, the heir to the throne, and dying in November. And then they had to kind of hang out and wait until they got married finally in February, February 14th, 1613, mm -hmm. Valentine's, Day, yeah. Valentine's Day. So I think of it as this kind of long winter, you know, mm -hmm. she was later known, of course, as the winter queen. Mm -hmm. um, but it, I also kind of compare it a little bit to what we experienced during like the lockdowns of COVID. We all watched a lot of Netflix mm -hmm. and I feel like they were, the court was in a kind of a lockdown period mm -hmm. as well of mourning. I think the King's Men coming to do uh, The Tempest at your house is better than Netflix. I'm going to say So they were watching all kinds of what, like a play a week or yeah, so yeah, they yeah. had they had to uh, to watch. And so a lot of these plays, uh, we can sort of think of them as kind of perhaps selected uh, to reflect some of the issues that were most um, pertinent or significant mm -hmm. to There's, like the, 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 none of the Shakespeare plays, none of them are Hen the Henry plays or uh, of uh, uh, Plantagenet's killing each other. None of those are done. No, exactly. Um, and, you know, she was herself uh, a, a patron of her own her own company, the mm -hmm, Lady mm -hmm, yeah. Elizabeth's Men. Um, and so she was very, um, very familiar with the theater and very, very involved. Um, so, yeah, so we can imagine, again, we can sort of imagine it in a kind of a Netflix selection, like plays <laughs> you might like, right? Um, so what would be, what would be interesting to the 15-year-old a princess, well, much ado about nothing, right? Mm -hmm. And the story of heroes' wronged innocence and the male accusations of her of her infidelity to to Claudio. Um, also, the kind of crisis moment happening at the scene of the wedding. Um, mm -hmm. So, kind of imagining what that would be, what that would be like as well. And we, we spoke earlier about The Winter's Tale as a kind of a, an inspiration for Thomas Campion's Lord's Mask. But, you know, um, it was also one of the plays that was performed during that time. And mm -hmm. we can see that, um, you know, that kind of 
tension between um, between Hermione as a kind of uh, you know chaste and loyal uh, wife again her uh, the accusations about her her lack of chastity and then Perdita of course as the lost daughter uh, raised in Bohemia which is of mm-hmm. course where Elizabeth would eventually be queen um, so there's that connection that geographical mm-hmm. connection as well the Maid's Tragedy, of course, uh, by, Beaumont by, Fletcher, yeah. by Beaumont and Fletcher. Yeah, uh, again, we have a kind of a an exploration of different ways of being a maid. On the one hand, we have Aspasia, who's dying to get married, but her desire is thwarted by Amintor, who is instead betrothed to Evadne, who is uh, in a relationship with uh, the king uh, that is not of her choosing. She's sort of coerced mm-hmm. into a sexual relationship with him. So we have a kind of an unwilling mm-hmm. um, virgin, and then we have someone who has been coerced and manipulated out of her virginity. And then we also have a male virgin, in the, in the case of Amator, who refuses to consummate his wedding with Evadne um, uh, when he discovers that she's the lover of the king. So all of these issues of chastity and sexuality, again, another play that hinges on the wedding night um, Mm -hmm. and its aftermath, um, the maid's tragedy, is uh, very uh, very relevant to to these concerns. Also, of course, The Tempest, which... um, um, uh, many scholars have connected to this wedding, mm-hmm. and also well, a boy comes to your island and you fall in love with him. Exactly. I mean, what yeah. else? And uh, with the tempest as well, you've got that whole new world connection mm-hmm. that is explored in uh, George Chapman's *The Memorable Mask*, um, and that, of course, is a play that contains its own mask in act four mm-hmm. um, with uh, goddesses that include Iris, a kind of a girl goddess, um, like Maid's Tragedy, which actually opens with a court mask um, and has many strong female characters in that mask as well. So Othello as well, uh, another play about the accusation of a blameless mm-hmm. uh, wife and also a wife who needs to, who is, you know, lives far away from her family. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are all of these plays that were actually performed at court, but then we can also think about the plays that weren't performed at court that mm-hmm. uh, nevertheless reflect on the themes of mm. virgin, virginal innocence. One key example for me would be Two Noble Kinsmen, Shakespeare and uh, Fletcher's Two Noble Kinsmen, which was performed in early 1613 where we have the issue of uh, the marriage of Emily um, Mm -hmm. and the multiple suitors that she has, uh, Palamon and Arcet. Which which Elizabeth also had. There were lots of people who were lined up to be Elizabeth's uh, husband. Exactly. And we also have the jailer's daughter, who is uh, also in love um, Mm -hmm. with Palamon and who is driven mad with desire. So again, the kind of um, acknowledgement of desire uh, as the kind of other side of, uh, of virginal chastity. So these, 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 this is a theme, it is sort of, this wedding gives an opportunity for all these themes to be pulled together in this six month period in preparation for the wedding. And uh, Parthenia, the book of uh, keyboard music, is just part of that, along with, uh, you know, John Donne's 
uh, Hail Bishop Valentine and things like this. It all becomes this whole ecosystem of, of uh, plays and arched objects about uh, these themes that we've been discussing here. That's absolutely right. As I argue in Shakespeare and the performance of girlhood, Shakespeare is interested in girls um, and the idea of girlhood from his very earliest plays, um, mm-hmm. for example, Romeo and Juliet. And so as we are getting into the, la- the first decade of the 17th century, we have for Shakespeare a whole career mm-hmm. of girl heroines, including Ophelia as well. But we also have at this time a girl who is one of the most important players on the international stage and a key figure for England and its own ideas of nationhood and, mm-hmm. uh, and colonial expansion and uh, exploration. So that feeds back to Shakespeare as well. And mm-hmm. Shakespeare goes on to write further plays that have to do with these kinds of virginal figures at the time when there was a very... Uh, prominent young uh, daughter um, and princess on the stage. So you're absolutely right. It's this kind of mutually reinforcing mm-hmm. ecosystem. Um, well, the, the pieces we're going to hear, we're going to hear uh, Pavan by John Bull and a couple of pieces by Orlando Gibbons. Let me pivot to the music by um, telling you that John Bull, uh, Elizabeth was lucky not to have him for her uh, keyboard teacher because John Bull had to leave England suddenly when he was found to be over familiar with a couple of his students. Uh, Bull did not leave your majesty's service for any wrong done unto him or for that matter of religion because he converted to Catholicism as soon as he got to Antwerp under which he feigned pretext how he sought to wrong the reputation of your majesty's justice, but did in that dishonest manner steal out of England through the guilt of a corrupt conscience to escape the punishment which notoriously he had deserved. That was Professor Deanne Williams in conversation with me, John Edwards. Check musiciansinordinary.ca for Louise's bio, Subscribe to our podcast for more music and poetry of the 16th and 17th century and more chat about it. And if you would like to help support these podcasts, please go to canadahelps.org and search for us there or to musiciansinordinary.ca and click through the link. Now let's hear Louise's recording produced by Matthew Antal of Bull's Pavan and Gibbon's Galliard and the Queen's Command. (laughs) 